family tradition that has been adopted from my wife's side of the family that we do every Christmas Eve at our house. And so what we like to do in this practice is we gather around the Christmas tree. I got four kids, so I gather them around the Christmas tree. I gather my parents around the Christmas tree. And before we open presents, before we do anything, we open up Luke 2, and we read the story together once again. The famous Christmas story. But before I do that with us this morning, before we practice this together, there's something that we need to get out of the way. Because see, my prayer and my hope for all of us this morning is that we would hear this story, that we would experience the story in a fresh way. That whatever we're familiar with would be moved aside for a second in order to hear the astounding proclamation that is made to us this morning through this story. But the one thing that we all need to remove or push aside for a moment, uh, you might be asking, what is those things? What what is that thing specifically? It's our assumptions. See, as I was studying this story, I realized quickly this this week that there's a lot of assumptions that I bring to this story. A lot of assumptions that I use to filter or lens to read this story and study this story. And I was starting to trace some of these assumptions I had. And I realize a lot of them come from our culture around us, you know, the TV shows that we watch or those famous Christmas movies that depict this Christmas story that we're about to read, right? A couple of assumptions are famous, popular assumptions. I'll read a couple. Maybe you can relate to some of them. It's assumed that Mary rode on a donkey, but nowhere in the Bible is that mentioned. It's assumed that there was an innkeeper, but it doesn't say that anywhere in the text. All it says is there was a guest room. It's assumed that uh, there were three magi, but it doesn't say that anywhere. Um, I'm talking about the wise man. And not only that, we have to realize that in Matthew, where it talks about the magi, they come years later after this baby is born. Let alone mention the star that led them to this place. Uh, It's assumed that there was a star over this stable or a barn where Jesus lay, but it doesn't say that anywhere. All it says, as we're going to see in a second, is that Jesus was laid in a manger. That could have been anywhere, any place. This is why we need to, to put those assumptions aside for a second this morning. See, the danger of assumptions are they can lead us to a distorted view of reality, a distorted way to understand the truth that is set before us, that is presented to us in this story. So putting those assumptions aside, whatever those assumptions you might have, let me read to us the Christmas story once again. Luke 2, 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went up from their town of Nazareth in Galilee to, 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 to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over 
their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clots and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. What I love about this story that we just read and the Bible in general is that although our culture has advanced considerably, you know, technology and all that, there's certain beliefs, there's certain ways of being human that somewhat transcend time. See, these first listeners uh, to this story, being human like us, had their own assumptions when it came to the story of the Savior of the world. They had assumptions of how the Messiah would come, probably on a horse, with a sword, ready to fight oppression. They had assumptions of what power looks like. They had assumptions that the Savior was going to save them from the Roman Empire. We have to remember this is first century Jewish culture that this story is being written in and told to or read in. And in this culture, they've been waiting 400 years for the Savior and this instance to be saved from this Roman impression that they find themselves under. This is who Luke is writing to. And like us with this Christmas story, they had assumptions of how this was all going to play out. A story or a narrative more like there's this wicked tyrant oppressing God's people, a.k.a. Rome. Up comes a noble and heroic leader coming in power, raising up an army, risking it all, fighting the key battle, cleansing the temple, setting Israel free to follow God and his law once more. But Luke starts this story a lot differently than we would expect, than they would expect. It starts with not a once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away, meaning it's not the typical way that most fiction of some kind would start. I say fiction because a lot of our culture looks at this story and thinks of it as a fairy tale, a story to be told to children, like, you know, Scrooge and the Christmas Carol or the Grinch. But Luke is intentional about how this all begins. And I get why, you know, culture thinks this is a fairy tale. Like, take the virgin birth, for example, right? The Holy Spirit shadowing Mary all of a sudden, conception, new life being born, like, I'm not even going to begin to try to touch that or explain that because the world's best biblical scholars still don't know how to fully explain this mystery of God, how God can and does work in our world. But Luke reveals to us his method of getting these stories to show us that they are not fiction. If you turn back to Luke 1 verse 2, he says this, as just they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. 
We need to get that these are eyewitness reports recorded by Luke. Most scholars say that this must have been Mary's retelling of the narratives, the stories, because of the details that are involved when it comes to her being in this story. I say this because Luke is intentional about starting this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. He's putting a timestamp on this story. He's saying to us, look back in history and you can tell and find out that this moment happened. And as followers of Jesus, in this place this morning, here's the thing. If you believe it or not, you can do the research and find out that the announcement of Christmas is this, that Jesus did arrive. He came. He stepped onto this earth. It wasn't wishful thinking. It wasn't fingers crossed. He showed up. If you're a skeptic in the room, you will not find a historian, whether they are of a religious persuasion or not, who would deny in any way that Jesus of Nazareth lived, breathed, walked, was arrested, tried, crucified by the Roman Empire. No historian would deny that. And I bring this to you because if you are skeptical about this whole story of Christianity, my challenge to you is to to look at and research the evidence. Read the story. See, because this is what psychology today says when it comes to our assumptions, when it comes to breaking down those assumptions that we carry. The first thing that you need to do, this article said, was assess the evidence. Assess the evidence. Because another thing assumptions can do, if we don't get a hold of them, if we don't dismantle them, if we don't look at them through the lens of truth, is they can actually distort our view of God and what he is like. What this Christmas story is trying to picture to us, trying to show to us. So this is my encouragement for you if you're accepted, if you doubt or have doubts around faith and Christianity, if God really exists. I want to encourage you that your doubt is okay because the opposite of doubt isn't faith. Actually, the opposite of faith is certainty. As one writer, Anne Lamott, a novelist, writes, She writes this, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely, though, she says. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, the discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. This morning, as we celebrate the light of the world coming into this world, my hope and prayer is that a little bit of that light would be shone on those doubts, those questions that you have, making sense of them this morning. But a second thing that I want us to notice and understand in Luke's intro is this looming character known as Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, having restored Roman rule, now in the form of the empire, was accorded honor due to one who seemed more a god than a human. Listen to one of the inscriptions found back in that day that honored him. It said this, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Again, I want you to see the intentionality of Luke. The notion of rulers being divine was taking hold of the Roman Empire of this time. He's speaking to a culture that looked at this godlike figurehead that ruled over the world in time, and it was forming their assumptions, 
their ideas of what the divine, what God was like. One scholar says Augustus was a bloodthirsty tyrant close to someone like Hitler or Mussolini. So it's not far-fetched to think if you ask someone on the streets of the day, what was God like? They would answer like this, an angry, power-hungry, ruling tyrant that presses you into submission. And here's the thing. Knowing the culture that we live in, I'm sure if you walked the streets of Langley or maybe in Vancouver and asked someone, what do you think God is like? You would probably find similar descriptives, similar adjectives that might be different words but might mean the same thing or try to express the same thing. That God is unloving, uncaring, a tyrant, removed from this world. He doesn't care. He's a narcissist. And here's the thing. I've held similar assumptions of what God is like before I followed Jesus. But I want to ask you this morning, what are some of the assumptions you might hold? Maybe even subconsciously. What if some of those assumptions have been formed more by the culture or the context that you live than the scriptures? Some of those assumptions I know might feel true to you, right? Because of some of the experiences that we have in this world, some of the experiences particularly maybe with church or religion. Like I remember when I was um, eight or nine, I went to this uh, church in Richmond and my dad worked at this church and one day after uh, school, I went over to the senior pastor's house because they were babysitting me. And I found myself playing uh, NHL on Super Nintendo with a senior pastor. He was kind of sitting on this couch. I was sitting on the floor in front of him. And I screwed up in some way. I don't know what happened. Maybe he scored on me or I made a mistake. I pressed the wrong button. And out of my eight-year-old mouth, uh, a bad word came out, okay? I don't remember what the word was, but I'm I'm pretty sure it wasn't that bad, okay? In my eight-year-old mind, I was pretty innocent at the moment. But whatever that bad word was, all of a sudden, the senior pastor who was sitting above me on the couch reached out his foot, slowly put it on my chest and pinned me to the ground, looked me in the eyes, and said, Ben, we don't talk like that in this house. Astonished, not sure what was going on in that moment, I quickly apologized, and we went back to playing NHL like nothing ever happened. I didn't realize it in that moment, but in my little mind, an assumption was being formed. An assumption that God did not like bad words. And if I ever said a bad word, he was waiting to stomp me out. That God was just looming somewhere in the distance, waiting for me to make a mistake so that he can punish me. So again, I ask you, what are some of the assumptions that you have this morning that you bring to the service of what God is like? Hold that thought. Verse four says, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Joseph takes his pregnant wife, Mary, with him 
This word pledged or betrothed simply uh, describes to us or speaks to us that they hadn't consummated the marriage. They're virgins, hence the prophecies being fulfilled in this text. Mary journeys with Joseph not because she has to, but because she's about to have this baby and Joseph doesn't want to leave her alone. So they go to what scholars say is Joseph's hometown. And as the text says, a couple days go by because while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So think about this. This is Joseph's hometown, right? So he's probably going to the family house. Think about Christmas around maybe your place, like our house, when my sister comes and visits from California. You know, 10 or 12 people crammed into this house. My boys, uh, they're right away kicked out of their room so that there's a place for my sister and her husband and our nephew, right? But flip that, and in this context, in this story, it's a poor family. And in most families of their status, the house was typically two floors. One for sleeping, the upper level, and under the same roof, the lower level is where they would keep the animals. It's in this space, the lower level, we find Mary and Joseph alone, away from the possible not mentioned family members. Mary a teenager, Joseph a young adult. And into that context, into that scene, reads the most famous Christmas verse, verse seven. And she gave birth for her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. As I was reading this verse, as I was studying this verse, I was thinking about how many times I've read this famous line. You know, I'm 37, so thinking about all the Christmases that I've experienced, the stories that I've heard, this text being read to me, it's probably like way over 50 times, okay? Like way over 50 times. And this is what hit me this time as I was reading it. I become so familiar with this story, so familiar with this verse, that I miss the powerful point that it's making. The powerful point that Luke is trying to communicate to us this morning. As they say, familiarity breeds contempt, right? And so as I was reading this, I sensed that the nostalgia of the season, you know, all the joy, all the traditions that it brings up, for some reason, it was making me look at this text and think for a second that it wasn't worth my time. Why? Because I get it already, right? I've read it before. I understand what's happening here. But f- trying to fight that this, this season, as I was reading this text, as I was studying it, trying to pray and reimagine what is Luke trying to get to us, this is what hit me again in a fresh way. It's a simple, amazing fact that she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. See, the great truth that we have as followers of Jesus this morning is this, is that God became one of us. God came down to this earth. The son of God became a real man. The son of God became a baby. Here at PKC, it's easy to imagine this. You know, right now in the season uh, that we're in as a church, there's a lot of babies being born or going to be born. So you could just look around right now to a baby in the back there. There's a little cash over there. And just see and imagine. Look into that that baby around you, okay? And think about this. The almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God took on the form of a baby. 
The story of Jesus' birth connects the idea of a baby with the power that sustains the stars. Think about that for a second. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body, mind, emotions, complete with human weaknesses, complete with the vulnerabilities that a baby brings. As the artist Scott Erickson says, Jesus is mighty not because of his capacity to overcome hardship, but his willingness to go through human hardship like we have to. He took on human form. This is the God we worship. This is the God that we celebrate. This is what the story is reminding of us this morning, that he's not a distant, far-off God sitting aloof in the clouds. He's not a tyrant sitting on his throne in heaven, not caring about what happens in this world. No, he came into our world to deal with all the darkness and pain and hardship and sadness and war and grief and messiness. Why, you might ask, as Paul says in Romans 8 in the words of Eugene Peterson, With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. See, first and foremost, Jesus came to deal with sin. The sin that entered our story back in Genesis 3 through Adam and Eve. The sin that causes all this fear, pain, sickness, disease, and death that we experience in this world. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that Luke is trying to proclaim to us. For Luke, the good news of the gospel starts with the birth of Jesus, but it doesn't end there. Because even in his birth, Luke is pointing to his death. And I don't think it's a coincidence or an accident that Luke mentions Jesus being put into a manger. Think about this, a feeding trough. A feeding trough. In John, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, pointing forward to the practice of communion where we take the bread that represents his body broken for us and the cup, the wine, the juice that represents his blood shed for us in remembrance of his sacrifice. And isn't it somewhat appropriate that the bread of life be placed in a feeding trough? Again, this is the gospel. When I say the gospel, this is what I mean. As one theologian said, the gospel is the announcement that God's kingdom has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord and the Messiah. In fulfillment of Israel's scriptures, the gospel evokes faith, repentance, and discipleship. Its accompanying effects include salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
That's why Jesus became human, so he can take the sins of the human race upon himself voluntarily to save us. And this is the powerful truth of Christmas. God has come to be with us so that we can be with him. God has come to be with us so that we can be with him, so that relationship is restored. This relationship that was fractured in the garden is restored. The gospel proclaims to us that love has a name, and that name is Jesus. It also tells us that the universe is motivated by love. It's sustained in love and will be redeemed in love. But it is a love that arises from the personal existence of a creator grounded in personhood. Jesus, both human and divine. And if you've ever had any assumptions about does God love me or what is God's love like, listen to me for a second. First of all, love is personal. Rocks don't love, cars don't love, inanimate objects don't love, people love. Love is not an abstract concept floating somewhere around us in the universe. It's grounded in personhood. We associate love with affection and tension and sacrificially putting the needs of another before your own. Think about that for a second, right? Think about the stories and the films that we watch. Isn't it true that some of the most touching films, those, those films or those stories that touch or grip a part of our soul are the ones that sacrificial love is portrayed in some way, some form in the story, right? It's because of this. Though it's often overused and misused in our culture, love is something that we as humans not only desire but need at both a conceptual and emotional level, but also it's the glue to our, our relational connection and our wholeness. And in the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth in the form of a baby, God's infinite love touches the messiness of everyday life in this world. So in those moments of loneliness, of mourning the loss of a loved one, or in the hospital room with a child that is hurt or a child that has passed away, or in the fight with your spouse, that this sense of pain wells up, that there's relational healing that needs to take place, or the pain of divorce, or the pain that comes from watching the horrors of war played out in the screen in front of you as children are bombed, or any other painful experience that you experience in this life. Listen to me, when those assumptions pop into your head that God doesn't care about me or the world that we live in, that I'm alone, that he doesn't love me, Let the Christmas story remind you that he not only cares, but he cares enough to do something about it. He cared enough to get off his throne in heaven and enter into poverty to be with you. You have a God that is making all things new, but not only that, you have a God that has come to this earth and who can sympathize with you in those moments. He knows what you're going through. He's felt it. He's experienced it. As it says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He has an an equally uh, uh, capacity for sympathy. It goes far beyond intellectual understanding. You need to get that. Jesus does not just imagine how his children feel in those moments. He has felt it. He feels it. God came to be with us so that we can be with him. And when you surrender your life to Jesus, 
you experience this love. This love comes rushing in, as Paul says in Romans, as the Spirit pours the love of the Father into your heart. My prayer for you this morning is that as we celebrate, as we remember this Christmas story, that you would experience this love. You would experience his presence. You would experience the joy, the peace, and everything else that this story proclaims to us. As the angel says, this is good news for all people. As Dan said earlier, you're not too far off from God in this moment. He comes to the most unlikely people to show his goodness, his mercy, and his love. Let's pray.